All right, you'll want to get out your message outline that says the possession of the Lord on it. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 19, getting into the meaty part. This is actually one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. So we're just going to do the first six verses today. So turn there with me to Exodus 19. Please listen carefully as this is God's word. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples." For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. We need to be reminded of what makes you so great. We need to be reminded that Exodus isn't just a history story, but a redemption story. And we need a redemption story. Thank you that Exodus points us to our Redeemer. We need the redemption he offers. We need the blessings that come from this redemption. And so we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Ni hao, wo zhu David, wo jing silvernail, hyang ying dao beijing, ren qi ni zhen rong jing. Dave said I had to preach in Mandarin. (laughs) So that's all the bad Chinese you're going to get this morning. Hello, my name is David. My last name is Silvernail. Welcome to Beijing. It is an honor to meet you. Uh, As you know, Joanne and I recently went to China. And uh, we chaperoned a student exchange trip from Stonebridge High School, where Joanne works. Uh, Truth be told, we were more tourists than chaperone. Uh, The students were all pretty good. It was an amazing trip. We got to see so many great things. One of the places we went was to the ancient Chinese capital of Xi'an. And there we got to see the awesome site of one of China's great national treasures, the Terracotta Warriors. Here's one of them. The real ones are life-size, and there's thousands of them thousands of years old. They have these terracotta warriors. They have an emperor and generals and infantry officers and soldiers and archers, along with life-size horses and chariots. And the Chinese have built large buildings over the excavations, which roughly cover, I'm estimating, about six football fields. And they haven't dug them all up yet. We even met the farmer who discovered them back in 1974. He's something of a celebrity 
in China. Um, the Great Wall of China is really great. It's over 3,000 miles long. We have to see about a mile of that. Um, we saw temples and palaces, performances of dance and acrobatics, Tiananmen Square and the Forbidden City, and ate phenomenal amounts of Chinese food. We even did okay with chopsticks. One thing that still amazes me is how unprepared I was for the sheer size of everything. Beijing is enormous. It's three times the population of New York City, uh, multiple downtown areas complete with skyscrapers, apartment complexes the size of Leesburg. Landwise, Beijing is larger than the combined states of Connecticut and Rhode Island. It's just a little bit smaller than New Jersey. There's more cars in Beijing than Metro DC has people. And while Washington has a beltway, Beijing has seven. The whole city, the whole country, was simply fascinating. And you couldn't possibly see everything. And as I read Exodus 19 this week, I couldn't help but think that Moses would have been incredibly jealous because he went on a long trip too, an all-inclusive vacation. And while he didn't get to enjoy the luxury of a 14-hour flight, he did get to take a three-month walk with a few million of his closest friends. I thought chaperoning high school students was going to be hard. Moses went on a special trip to the wilderness where he got to see lots of wilderness. And when I say wilderness, I mean rocks and sand. They're on the edge of the Sinai Desert. Big rocks, little rocks, sand. So they walked around for a while and they got to see more wilderness. In the world's estimation, Israel had just arrived in the middle of nowhere. There was nothing here. Nothing to buy, nothing to see, nothing to do, nothing but wilderness. There were no buildings, no cities, no centers of ancient civilization, nothing. Just rock. Lots and lots of rock. There was one thing, however, and it was the most important thing of all. God was there. The Lord said he had brought the Israelites to himself. And there's no better place to be in all the world than to be with God, even if it's in the middle of nowhere. And there's no better gift to have than to have the Lord himself, even if it's out in the wilderness and you have nothing else. At Mount Sinai, the Israelites would see and hear things which no other people on earth would ever see or hear again. Mount Sinai would soon be the most amazing place to be because God himself was going to descend on that mountain. Why had God brought them here? Why had God brought them to this mountain? Why had God brought them to a place of nothingness? 
in the wilderness just rock. The Lord, through Moses, gives them three reasons. Past, present, and future. And he gives them those reasons right here in Exodus 19. It's easily one of the most important chapters in the whole Old Testament. So turn with me, let's look at the first reason, which considers past redemption. Past redemption. Starting at verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So three months after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day of the three-month anniversary of the Exodus, they arrive at Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, the same mountain where God spoke to Moses from the burning bush and sent him to bring the people out of Egypt. And at that time, God had promised Moses, all the way back in Exodus 3, before any of the plagues, before any of the dramatic stuff, before the Red Sea and the drowning of the army, before the cloud of, uh, of uh, a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, God promised, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And now they've arrived at this mountain. And God has kept his promise. So why had God... Why did God bring them to this mountain? They had come here to worship him. When they were in Egypt, again and again, Moses declared to Pharaoh the reasons the Israelites had to be set free. Numerous times Moses said to Pharaoh, Exodus 8, Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Some translations say worship me. Those words are used interchangeably often in the Bible. One reason we call it a worship service. They're interrelated. It also says we must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. Well, it took a little bit longer than three days. Turned out to be three months. But their purpose never wavered. They had come here to worship the living and true God. They faced many difficulties along the way, uh, worst being their own sins. But at last they've arrived. They had come to the wilderness away from all the distractions of the world for one great purpose. The purpose for which all people are created to glorify God. The Israelites would spend almost a year by this mountain learning how to worship God. Why? Why are they here? Why did they have to learn this? What God would teach them in the next 11 months would have radical implications for the rest of the history of Israel and indeed for the people of God all the way down to this day and all the way to the coming of our Savior. They are parked here in the wilderness of Sinai and here they meet with God. Remember, this is a long meeting. It lasts 11 months. It's not nearly as long, though, as they're wandering in the wilderness. 
They're going to wander in the wilderness for almost 40 years. But it's very interesting, I think, that if, of those 40 years, we're only told about a few, very few of them in the books of Moses. But of these 11 months, you know what we get? We get the rest of the book of Exodus, we get all of the book of Leviticus, and we get numbers through chapter 10. So these 11 months are less than one 40th of the time Israel's in the wilderness. But these 11 months occupy almost three entire books of the Bible. From Exodus 19 through Leviticus all the way to Numbers 10. So what's going on? Do you think of there's that much that God says about this one year? you think God has something significant to say here? think there's something of lasting importance being said here? Is that why he's spending so much time cataloging what happens at this great uh, campsite? It's exactly what's going on. Why are long stretches of the history of Israel in the wilderness simply skipped over? And yet there's all this attention on this one 11-month-long meeting. Because the giving of the law is the great distinctive of God's covenant with Moses. This covenant is a covenant of grace. You need to understand that. Moses has made that clear in Exodus 2. God himself has made that clear with his own mouth in Exodus 6. This covenant with Moses, this covenant with the people of God announced by Moses is a continuation of the grace covenant which God made with Abraham back in Genesis 12, which he confirmed in Genesis 15, and he reconfirmed in Genesis 17. It's a grace covenant, but the distinctive point of it, the unique thing, is this unveiling of God's law. God's law is unveiled with a clarity and a comprehensiveness in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and of course it's repeated in Deuteronomy, in a way that's never surpassed in the history of redemption. Even Jesus doesn't give a more comprehensive cataloging of the law. He uh, definitively interprets the law, but he doesn't add to the law. And the great distinctive of this Mosaic covenant is God's revelation of his law. And what God wanted to, when he wanted to show his work of grace on a grand scale, a large scale, uh, in the Old Testament, he produced a large-scale model of it so that people could see it and understand it. And that's Israel. That's their purpose. You might say that Israel served as God's PowerPoint uh, to display to the world uh, who and how he saves. And Israel demonstrated on a national level what God was doing on a personal level. And in this great speech of God, that we have in Exodus 19 and 20. It spans the past, present, and future. God reminds Israel of what he has done to deliver them. He told them why he had done it and what plans he has for the future. Really, everything else in the Old Testament and everything else in history can be explained in terms of the covenant relationship described in these chapters. God began by reminding his people what he had done for them. Considered some of the most important words in the whole Old Testament. Right here, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
There's divine deeds. You've seen what I've done. There's a divine defeat, what I did to the Egyptians, divine deliverance, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and a divine destiny. I brought you to myself. And this summary of redemption mentions three separate stages in Israel's redemption, a bringing out, a lifting up, and a drawing close. First, there's what God did to Egypt. He humiliated Pharaoh's gods one by one, attacking them with ten terrible plagues. Then he drowned Pharaoh's army in the sea. And in this way, he brought his people out of slavery. Second, he lifted his people up on eagles' wings. It's a beautiful image, richly symbolic. The eagle is a fierce bird of prey. It attacks its enemies the way God attacked Egypt. But it's also a bird of rescue. It's wonderfully portrayed in Tolkien's fantasy stories, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. At several different points in the stories, the heroes are rescued by eagles. Near the end of The Hobbit, at one point they're surrounded by hordes, and just at the moment when all seems lost, one of them gave a great cry. He'd seen a sight that made his heart leap. Dark shapes, small yet majestic against the distant glow, the eagles, the eagles, he shouted, the eagles are coming. Tolkien took that straight out of the Bible. That's Old Testament imagery. The wings of eagles depict God's protective nurture, his tender care. The same image appears in Deuteronomy. Moses sings about God's love for his people. In that love song, it's clear that God is speaking of the way he cared for Israel in the wilderness. We find it in Deuteronomy 32. <coughs> but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The picture is of a mother eagle caring for her young. Eaglets are especially helpless, remaining in the nest for up to 100 days. And then, as one commentator explains, when it's time for the young birds to, to leave the eyrie and learn to fly, the eagle stirs up the nest but doesn't abandon uh, her young. If they experience difficulties in their first attempt at flying, the mother bird uh, swoops down below them and lifts them up on her wings back to safety. That's what God says he's doing for his people in the wilderness. They had been delivered from slavery. But they're vulnerable. This is their first flight, so to speak. They're vulnerable to starvation. They're vulnerable to attack by their enemies. So God lifts them up on his mighty wings, providing them with food, water, victory, and battle. The third and last thing God did for his people is to draw them closer to himself. He led them to his holy mountain where they would worship him. So the Exodus isn't just about getting Israel out of Egypt. It's also about getting Israel closer to God. That's always true in redemption. Redemption is never an end in itself. There's always something greater. And that something greater is God himself and our relationship with him. And that's the history of God's relationship with Israel. He delivered them from Egypt, carried them through the wilderness, redeemed them to and for himself. 
And since the Israelites had seen all of this for themselves, God appeals to them as eyewitnesses. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did. Let me ask you, what have you seen God do? Every Christian has seen God do essentially the same things he did in the days of Moses. Because Israel's redemption is the pattern for redemption in Christ. First, God delivered us from our bondage to sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Since then, he's carried us on eagle's wings, provides what we need. Uh, and whenever we're in danger of falling, he catches us, lifts us back up. And all the while, God is drawing us into the embrace of his love. God has brought us out. And now he's lifting us up and drawing us close so that we will be sure, we will be convinced, we will be assured of his love. And he's not done. He's reminding them, I drew you here. I brought you here. God is saying, it's me. I'm the one who draws you to myself. I didn't wait for you to find your way. I drew you to myself. All these things you see, all these things highlight the grace of God. It's interesting that before God speaks the law, he says, Moses, you have to explain my grace to them once more. After all, he's going to spend three books on the law. Somebody might start scratching their head and think, well, maybe since God spent so much time on the law, it means we're redeemed by the law. We're redeemed by law-keeping. We're redeemed by being obedient to the law. And before anybody can get that in their mind, God tells Moses, tell the people to remember that I redeemed you by grace. They won't forget that when I give them the law. The law is not the means of redemption. It's the goal of redemption. It's not the cause of deliverance. It's the goal of deliverance. So that's the first thing. Whatever comes next, you have to realize these people are already saved. They're already redeemed. They've already been delivered. So anything said from here on out isn't an attempt to secure those things. They already have them. So what follows redemption? Well, what follows is present obedience and future promises. Present obedience and future promises. I know two blanks in one point. You can handle it. Verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. It's sometimes said that past is prologue. And I think that's true in the Christian life. What God has done for us in the past is the basis of what he expects from us in the present. So his mighty work of redemption always demands a response. So after reminding his people of how they were redeemed in the past, God proceeds to set the terms for their relationship in the present. He says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Realize this statement is made to people who are already redeemed. The Israelites have already been delivered from bondage, and they've been redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb. It's crucial for understanding how God's law works 
in the Christian life. The order of the Exodus is important. First, God delivers his people from bondage. Then he gave them the law. Imagine what would have happened if it had been the other way around. Suppose God had said to Moses, Tell my people, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, I'll carry you away from Egypt on eagles' wings. There never would have been an exodus at all. God's people would still be in bondage due to their failure to keep the covenant with God. But God is a God of grace, so he redeems his people first, then he calls them to obey his law. The history of Exodus helps us to understand the function of the law in Christian life. First, God rescues us from our sin, then he teaches us how to live for his glory. If personal obedience had to come first, we would never make it. We'd never be redeemed. But as it is, God saves us in Christ before he calls us to live for Christ. And two things need to be kept in mind as we ask the question of Exodus 19.5. What does Moses mean when he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. When he says, if you will, does that mean that Israel is not a treasured possession? Not a kingdom of priests? Not a holy nation? But if she will obey, then she will become a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation? Or is he saying something else? Two things need to be kept in mind. Every covenant has responsibilities. There's no such thing as a relationship without responsibility. You know, as a husband, I know there's lots of men out there questing for some sort of relational nirvana where there are no responsibilities. I understand that doesn't exist. Hopefully that's not new news for anybody. Every relationship has responsibilities. And that's what Moses is going to talk about. So keep that in mind. Secondly, in God's economy, responsibilities are always blessings. So notice in verses uh, 5 and 6, what are the responsibilities spelled out? We're to be his treasure and possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Those are responsibilities. But simultaneously, those are also great blessings. Who would have dared all the way back in the Garden of Eden, in the face of Adam's sin, not only to go to God, but to say, okay, Lord, why don't you give your son in our place so that we can have redemption? And in addition to that, make us your treasure possession in all the earth, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Just throw that in for no extra charge. Who would have said that? Yet the Lord is saying that. Right here in Exodus, in the Law of Moses, in the Old Testament, responsibilities are blessings. You don't have to wait to get to the New Testament. In other words, God is so ordering things that the things he requires us uh, to do, the things he requires of us, not only bring him glory, they do us good. They're actually blessings for us. So bear those things in mind. We try and understand these verses. Moses is not saying, keep God's law, and in return, he'll make you a treasured possession. They already are. He's already borne them out on eagles' wings. They already are a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. He's already shown them grace. He's already made them his people. 
He's already embraced them. He's already distinguished them from Egypt and from all the other nations. So Moses is not saying, keep the law and I will make you what you are not yet. He's saying, keep God's law and you will be what he made you for. He made you to be a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now keep God's law and you'll be what he made you for. If you really think about that, it's pretty amazing. How could that be? How can we go on living like this? Moses is glad you asked. Exodus 20, Leviticus, Numbers. That's how you go on living like that. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to an idol. You shall not take my name in an empty and vain way. Remember my day. Keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. He says, keep God's law, and you'll be what he made you to be. So when you say, how can I be what God made me to be? The law is repeated in our ears. You shall have no other gods before me. Start there. It's an expression of what God made us to be. So here we see the importance of the law. We see law in the context of grace, in the context of covenant, that's what we're going to be unfolding for the next few weeks. We're actually not going to go through each of the commandments now. We're going to take them as a total package, and then the summer of 2017, we're going to come back and deal with them one at a time. So, uh, But for a Christian to understand the relationship between law and grace, faith and obedience, it's one of the most important things we can know in order to live a faithful, <clears throat> excuse me, faithful, fruitful Christian life. And you, you have to get the fact that these beautiful blessings and responsibilities are the same. The blessings are responsibilities, the responsibilities are blessings. The privileges are responsibilities, the responsibilities are privileges. You are my treasured possession. God announces that he owns the whole earth, but you are his treasured possession. That's a word that refers to something special, a possession the king delights in above uh, everything else. It's a phenomenal thing for God to say, everything in the world is mine, but you are the thing I have chosen to delight in the most. That's why John Calvin could say, we are not our own, we belong to God, therefore let us live for him and die for him because he's chosen his people in his grace and in his mercy. He says, you're a kingdom of priests. Think about that. The priesthood of all believers is not a New Testament doctrine. It's an Old Testament doctrine. And this doctrine actually is the foundation of missions. You don't have to wait until Matthew 28 to get a foundation of missions. It actually starts in Genesis 3.15. You find it in the covenant in Genesis 12, and you find it here. If the entire nation is to be a kingdom of priests, what do priests do? Priests intercede for people. Well, if you have a nation of priests, who are they interceding for? Other nations. The other people in the kingdom, the other people not in the kingdom yet. Priests stand before God on behalf of other people. You are a holy nation, he says. Set apart, chosen, a people appointed to holiness. 
those words aren't just for Israel. In 1 Peter 2, our responsive reading this morning, the Apostle Peter, talking to a congregation of Christians, a lot like you, says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Obviously, that up. He got that from Exodus 19. A people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He made you to be a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You're already saved. You're already redeemed. You've already been delivered. You already have all these things. So the question is, do you really believe that? You know, a couple times a week I go out for lunch. And uh, most of the time, particularly at some place like a deli or a sub shop, uh, lunch is served on a paper plate. Guess what I did with the paper plate when I finished eating lunch? I didn't wash it, and I didn't save it for later. In fact, I don't think I've ever done that with a paper plate. I throw it away, just like you do. And I don't feel any sense of loss or regret. Oh, look what I did to that paper plate. It doesn't bother me. But we have these other plates at our house. They're in a cabinet in the dining room. My wife put them there. We save them for special occasions, and we wash them after we use them. They're the best we've got, those dishes. And when we're done, we put them away very carefully, because if you drop them, you're out of the family. No, not really. Maybe. No. So what's the difference? Paper plates are cheap, practically worthless. You throw them away. Now, good dishes, no, they're expensive. They're too valuable to throw away. Guess which one most people feel like today? That's right, an awful lot of people feel like paper plates these days. I mean, they've been put down, hurt, neglected, ignored, left out, abused, and as a result, they feel worthless. And far too often in these cases, they're throwing themselves away. It might be this morning that you're doing that. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can throw yourself away. You can throw yourself away socially by the friends you choose. You can throw yourself away academically by not trying or just giving up. You can throw yourselves away with alcohol, chemicals, uh, romantically, sexually, musically. You can be suicidal. But when you get close to Jesus, you find out God didn't make any paper plates. If you think you're not worth much, you're so wrong about who you are. And if anyone's treated you like you're not worth much, they don't know who you are either. The one who knows what you're worth is the one who gave you life in the first place, the one who gave you worth in the first place, your creator God. And here's how he feels about you. He says, you shall be my treasured possession. God says you're treasured, you have worth, you have value. You're not trash. You're too valuable to throw away. 
doesn't just say that here. There's lots more in the Bible. God's appraisal of your worth. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship. We're God's workmanship. Workmanship isn't just thrown together. It's not an accident. You're a masterpiece. You're a handmade creation of the creator God. He goes on to say in that same verse, we're uh, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you're uniquely created to make a difference in other people's lives. But there's more. 1 Corinthians 6, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. God says you're a treasure. He says you're his workmanship. You're the one he paid for. And he paid a lot. You can always tell how much a person values something by how much they're willing to pay for it. Well, God paid for you with the blood of his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though you've sinned, he wants you back so much, he sent his son to do the dying for your sin, to pay the death penalty in your place. You're that special. So don't believe the lies that your brain keeps telling you that you're a paper plate, that you're worthless. You keep being tempted to throw yourself away. You're valuable. You're a person of real worth, preserved for a special purpose. You're made in the image of God. And if you feel like you're not worth much, it may be because you've never gone deeply into a relationship with the one who gave you worth in the first place. The one who feels, feels so deeply about you. The one who loves you sacrificially. Don't believe the lies about who you are anymore. Find out the truth of your worth by giving yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross for the sin that makes you feel worthless. Today, let this be the day that you say, Lord, I take this life out of my own hands and put it in your hands. I'm putting my total trust in the one who died for my sin. You can take it from here. That's a new start. That's a new beginning. That's a new story. That's a new creation. And then you can live like the treasured possession that your creator God says you are. Or you can ignore his word. You can ignore his truth. You can ignore him and just be a paper plate. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, we acknowledge that through the finished work of Christ on the cross, we belong to you. Teach us what it means to be your treasured possession, your kingdom of priests, your holy nation. Enable us to go deeply into a relationship with the one who gives us worth. And then grant that we may live like the treasured possession you say we are.
In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Receive God's blessing from 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God bless you. We'll see you next week.